Welcome back, everyone. And again, if it works to uh, show your video on, it's nice for me to see people as we're talking together, as particularly uh, yeah, both, both aspects, my own talk and then our discussion. So if that works for you to have your video on, that's very helpful. So last week, the theme that I took, this was last Wednesday, I took the theme of exploring polarization in a society, among people, in communities, uh, differences, and conflicts. Little did I know, giving that talk on Wednesday, what would happen on Friday. <laughs> that there was the ruling of the Supreme Court. And I'll, I'll, come, I'll come back to that. And so last week, we explored the nature of uh, difference, of uh, polarization, of conflict to some extent. And in particular, I asked, how do we respond to difference, conflict, polarization from a Dharma perspective. Another way we can say that, how do I respond to these occurrences, to polarization, difference, conflict? How do I, how do I respond from the perspectives of love and compassion, of wisdom, and of skillful action? That's a short way of saying what the Dharma perspective is. How do I bring in those qualities in situations which often seem to have little of those qualities? Right? How do I do that? And I identified six core practices, which I think we can understand to be practices that can be carried out by individuals, but also have a meaning in terms of relationships and organizations or groups, communities, and also in terms of a larger society. So the six practices were these. I'll just name these and then I'll come back to them. But just as a reminder, and because the invitation was for people to explore practicing with these six in the week since last Wednesday. In, in different ways. The first was, really, it's the, um, it's the intention to bring one's practice into difference or conflict or polarization. It's to be open to exploring the territory. You know, even if one has uh, quite a bit of conditioning to be, for example, conflict avoidant, which many of us have. We explored that last time. The second is empathy and the ability to listen in an open way to someone else, even if there are differences. Doesn't mean agreeing necessarily, but it means listening openly and empathically. Empathy doesn't necessarily mean agreement, but it means uh, treating the other as a human being who has uh, also 
uh, an inner experience as a human being. The third, working with uh, one's views, opinions, perspectives, particularly where there are tendencies to be uh, attached to one's views, to be, to be somehow um, closed or contracted around views or perspectives or opinions. The fourth, very fundamental, is working with the difficult emotions, the difficult thoughts, even the difficult body experiences that come up when there's conflict or difference or uh, polarization. How do I work with my own reactivity, my own anger or grief or um, irritation or numbness, whatever it, whatever it is. The fifth was wise speech. How do I speak skillfully in these kind of situations? And the sixth are developing one's ability to come from the heart, to come from care, kindness, love, compassion, even if one is saying, no, that's not okay, uh, even in um, opposition or really be taking a very strong position. Can we do that in love? I'm reminded of the very important understanding that comes from uh, the philosopher and activist Cornel West. He says, uh, justice is the public face of love. Quite a statement. Justice is the public face of love. And so we explored this last Wednesday. Uh, two, uh, two days later in the morning, there was the announcement from the Supreme Court of the United States. And I want to also recognize that we have people here from multiple countries. I'll try not to be U.S.-centric too much. But uh, you know, probably most of us are from the U.S. But I know that these actually, that uh, what's, happening here is actually tracked quite carefully uh, in other countries. I was actually part of a gathering yesterday that was um, looking at questions of polarization in multiple countries. And so the issues are there in multiple countries. But in any case, there was the ruling of the Supreme Court of the United States uh, outlawing or overturning the 1973 constitutional right to an abortion. And, um, you know, a lot has occurred since then. It's on many, if not most people's minds. And there also have been the continuation of the uh, congressional hearings uh, related to the January 6th insurrection, which many people heard. So today, again, I want to continue with this theme, really asking the question, how do we bring our spiritual depths to these challenging situations, to polarization? Again, shorthand would be, how do we bring love and compassion? How do we bring clear seeing uh, into the nature of things, uh, what we call wisdom? And how do we bring skillful action in? You know, and I'm reminded of the traditional understanding 
that the Dharma or the teachings and practices are like a bird with two wings. And it's said that one wing is wisdom and the other wing is compassion. That's a very traditional image in the Buddhist tradition. I'm also reminded how, um, probably not widely known, but in the Vietnamese tradition, starting in the 1930s, in the midst of the uh, anti-colonial struggle, they felt a need to modify that image of the bird. And they said that there actually are three dimensions that are really important. There's wisdom, there's compassion, and there's courage. I heard this from my, uh, my friend uh, Thich Minh Duc, a Vietnamese monk. And he said there's wisdom, compassion, and courage. And I like to think courage is related to the body of the bird, not just the wings, <laughs> and the body of the bird, and also to the dimension of action. I think courage is related to action. So I think we can see uh, these three dimensions as important. And as I, as I go further, I want to take us further than we were uh, last week in a few different ways. I want to uh, identify some basic principles that it's important to see that there's a relationship between how we practice individually, maybe in our own personal meditation, how we work with our own minds and bodies and hearts. And then there's also what we might call relational practice. How do we work with these issues when they come up in our relationships, our families, among friends, in our organizations? And then thirdly, there's the collective level of practice in which we're engaging in a larger society in whatever ways we do that. And so I want to suggest that it's helpful to think of there being three uh, broad areas of practice, and they're, they're interconnected, right? And we'll, we'll find that the, um, you know, having inner practices makes a huge difference when we look at how we work with polarization or difference or conflict in our relationships and also in the larger society. So what I'm really suggesting is that there's this really important uh, capacity that's especially called for at this time. We might say connecting inner and outer, connecting inner work with uh, the bringing of it into the relational and the collective domains. Really, really crucial now. And what I have found in my own teaching and personal practice over the years is that the principles related to polarization and working with difference and conflict actually are the same in all of these domains. What we learn working with a difference with one friend will teach us how to work with the larger society and vice versa. So that's, that's, those are some starting points that I want to uh, mention. So what I want to explore a little bit more than I explored last time on the nature of polarization, um, then I want to um, talk briefly about how working with differences and conflicts is hard, then talk about the six practices, and then lastly give one further piece 
that helps us give a little more from the wisdom perspective, uh, kind of a vision of how to work, you know, in kind of with more depth with differences, sort of a vision of how we get towards, um, how we get towards that, uh, what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called the beloved community, where people who were formerly opponents now become part of our community, part of, you know, become friends and so forth. So first a few thoughts on the nature of polarization, you know, with, with some reference to what's happening in the world. So we have, you know, we have the polarization, which we can see, um, again, it's in multiple countries. We can see it in the United States around abortion, even as whatever, I think, you know, the percentage of people who, who want abortion to be a right is, is, I don't know, it's in the, you know, I think in the middle high 60%. So it's, it's a very large percentage. The percentage who would be in favor of the Supreme Court ruling is a significant minority, but it's a, it's a so, so we have polarization there. We have polarization at the level of uh, uh, politics, Democrats and Republicans. We can see that very much in the congressional hearings, which one political party is generally not participating in. We have different views about uh, the very nature of the election. Uh, and there's a lack of communication and movement on this. There's, there's, it's, it's polarized. Um, there's, we might say, a um, kind of a fraying of some of the main institutions. You know, so interestingly, there was a Gallup poll about the Supreme Court taken the day before the ruling. It was taken last Thursday, and they found that those who said they have a, a significant amount of confidence in the Supreme Court of the United States was at its lowest ebb in the last 50 years that uh, people who had confidence, in fact, it was the lowest point, it was 25%, and it was the lowest point since they've been doing polls. That's, that's significant. And we can see, similarly, there's, a, there's kind of a fraying of the Congress with lack of trust and lack of cooperation, uh, different even than how it was a sh short time ago. I've mentioned sometimes I worked in the U.S. Congress uh, actually, when I was in college, and I, I had many issues with it, but it, it wasn't like it is now, you know, and same thing even with uh, the electoral system is frayed. People don't know whether they can have confidence in the uh, electoral system at the state level, at the national level. You know, this is um, the fraying of major institutions, lack of, you know, many people have less trust in the media and so forth. And all of this, the sort of the fraying of the institutions, the polarization, makes it very hard to deal with the core collective issues facing uh, the country and the world, you know. So there's paralysis on issues of really, to a large extent, on issues of relating to the climate emergency, you know, guns. There's some things happening, but it's not really what's needed. Uh, you know, voter suppression and all of this. Um, so there's the polarization leads to a kind of 
uh, paralysis. And again, we find this in other countries. So polarization means that there is sort of a fracturing of places where there previously were connections, a fracturing of a, a previous sense of what brings people together. You know, often uh, driven by fear, by loss, quite a bit of it in the United States is driven by fears arriving from demographic changes, fears of the other, and even denial of the humanity of people one is opposed to. You know, that can be that can be on both sides. If you don't have this, if you don't have my view, you're not part of my community. So polarization often uh, brings that. Again, from a moral point of view, uh, polarization means I'm good, I belong, you're bad, often you don't even belong. So there's this lack of something greater. You know, the lack of what, again, what Dr. King called the beloved community, the lack of um, kind of a larger sense of uh, everyone belongs, which I think you can find there's certainly roots of that in many, many countries. And um, so we can see that. And I've mentioned how this is not just nationally in the country, but I mentioned last time how a lack of skill with differences and even um, uh, and conflict and polarization is something that we find in many, many settings. I have seen that in social change organizations. I mentioned last time how I once did a training at a conference on spiritual activism. And the first thing I asked, I was going to give people, what's the curriculum for a spiritual activist? That was what I was going to offer. But first I wanted to hear, what are your issues? And the main issue that was named was that in our organizations, we get really mean towards each other. We don't handle conflict well. We're caught in anger and demonization. Again, how many can have seen that sometimes, even in organizations you like or love or a part of? And I've seen that also in spiritual communities, including some of the communities connected with insight meditation. You know, and it's... Um, you know, have not always handled uh, conflicts well. Um, you know, I've seen that many times. It's, uh, it's fairly sobering to see that. You know, I think it's in part because, this is my own view, but in insight meditation communities, as in many Buddhist communities, the emphasis has been almost, sometimes almost exclusively on meditation, on individual meditation, and there's often a lack of really bringing that out into uh, how do we practice in a community, wise speech, relational practices, practices in the larger world. Uh, so I've, I've seen that. I think that's, you know, there are different routes. Uh, um, I think another route that uh, we looked at last time is that many of us have conditioning, this is my conditioning, to be conflict avoidant. So there are deep roots why many of us um, including very well-meaning people, are not always skillful with conflicts. We have, uh, you know, we have con conflict avoidant conditioning, you know, in many families. And then the opposite of that is sort of to jump into conflicts and just jump into them and be, uh, make a mess of things. So the two main uh, forms of conditioning are conflict avoidant and conflict indulgent, both of which don't 
work with conflict skillfully. So there's very strong conditioning, and I mentioned some of that. Some of it's, you know, it's different with different ethnic groups. It's quite interesting. You know, in different countries, some countries are more conflict indulgent, some are more conflict avoidant, you know, and I, I mentioned some of that um, last time. And, you know, we have tendencies when we're in conflicts to either just not want to deal with them or to become, you know, sometimes we can get very reactive, we get attached to our views, all the different things which could be addressed by those six practices I named. You know, that we, when we're in conflicts, even if we're actually often very loving, kind people, sometimes in conflicts our hearts get closed. How many people know that at times? You've seen that. You know, we can, we can see that that occurs. You know, that uh, we demonize people, we uh, judge people harshly, our hearts get closed. And so there are a lot of, a lot of challenges. This is, this is not beginning spiritual practice, right? <laughs> this is, uh, and then that's why we really, uh, a lot of the practice which is I'm suggesting really work best when we have a pretty good mindfulness practice, loving kindness practice, and so forth. So I want to go back to those six practices, uh, name them, expand some with some of them, and and touch in again in, and just name them. And uh, in our discussion, we'll have a, a chance for people to share. If you explored these with your own experience of differences, we can share some of that. So again, the six practices are number one, being willing to go into conflicts and differences. Number two, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give a little bit different order here. Number two, uh, heart practices. Number three, empathy and careful listening. Number four, practicing with views and attachment to views. Number five, practicing with difficult emotions and reactivity. And number six, wise speech. So I'll, I'll go over those. I'll touch some of what we touch, bring in some new material. And then I'll also give, uh, I'll give more time on sort of a vision of how we, um, what's a vision that we can have when we go into a situation with polarization, differences, and conflicts, okay? So the first is being willing to explore differences and conflicts, to explore polarization, bringing in our other practices. Can I, um, can I go in and particularly, can I go in with the perspective of wanting to learn from the experience rather than simply get my way? Can I have respect towards others? And this is in a way pointing towards what the um, larger goal is, which is to have really to have a situation where everyone is respected. You know, where everyone receives care, where everyone is, is deemed worthy of care and love. That's not the kind of situation uh, that we have with a lot of these polarized situations. You know, it's where, again, to use the language of Dr. King, we're aspiring towards something like the beloved community. Again, we could, there's different language we can use. 
Dr. King said, this is 1957, he said, the end is reconciliation. He was talking about major differences, major polarization. The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which can bring about miracles in the hearts of human beings. You know, another kind of language that some people use is universal belonging. What would it be to be in a polarized situation, have the attitude, everyone belongs, everyone's view is important, right? That's, that seems distant from much of our current situation. This is the language I learned from someone who I've learned a lot from, uh, John A. Powell, who is the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute. So he uses the word belonging a lot, which is connected with the University of California, Berkeley, and wonderful programs. If you're interested, you can get on their mailing list, their email list. They have wonderful programs. They actually sponsored the program yesterday looking at polarization, you know, looking at ways to respond to polarization. So what does belonging mean? It means acknowledging the humanity of others, even if they're differences. You know, uh, belonging doesn't mean everyone agrees. You know, it's how can we have a deeper connection and this is where, again, spiritual principles come in, principles of love and wisdom. If we have love, we can have a sense there's a deeper connection, even with the differences. And we can, we can include those with different views in our community. And I, I'll, I'll come back to that later. But I was thinking of an example, which I think I've given from time to time, that um, uh, I think I've mentioned sometimes that I was a teacher at the University of Kentucky for four years. I was in the uh, philosophy department. And um, I went there, and one of the main courses that I taught uh, was ethics. I taught ethics courses. Um, there are a lot of stories I could tell about this. So one, one was, I think I've told it sometimes, is that I, um, one of my classes had about um, half of the people in the class were from the football team and they had just, uh, it was an evening class and they had just been practicing for five hours and had a big meal and then they came to my class. And, uh, and I was a, a young teacher and I had to bring all the depths of my spiritual practice to that situation. Anyway, that's, that's one story. But um, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the things we did in that ethics class is we went into all the difficult uh, ethical issues. This was the middle 1980s, okay? And so we went into abortion in Kentucky. We had in my class, we had fundamentalists in my class, and we had people, we had people on both sides. I also went into issues, we went into issues like of environmental ethics and I had people in the class who were the sons and daughters of coal miners from Eastern Kentucky in the coal mines. You know, and so how, did, how could we go into these challenging ethical issues? And what I was able to establish, partly I think um, because I had some authority, even though as a young teacher, I actually um, 
sometimes in the class uh, or on the campus, people thought I was a student because I, I looked kind of young. I was like in my, you know, I think uh, later 20s and so, so. And so I actually, um, uh, I grew a beard to make me look older. Anyway, but um, it, it, I think it works some. Any case, because I, I was the teacher, I established right at the beginning that we're going into these difficult issues. We want to do so from a position of respect for others' views and listening. And so we did that, you know, and people, re it really worked. People, we discussed abortion, you know, multiple classes, and people were willing to listen to the other people's views and, and take it in, you know, and be open. Maybe they would change their views. And that worked, right? That, you know, so that can be a vision. What's, how do we come to that? You know, how do we come to that situation where people are listening? You know, when I go into a situation, am I willing to listen to the other who has a different view? Am I willing to do that and possibly change my view? Yeah. So very key for that is the second practice, which I'll call developing the heart practices. I think those of us who want to work with uh, polarization and differences and conflicts, we have to uh, regularly be tuning into uh, the kind heart. You know, so our practices of loving kindness and compassion, joy, equanimity, gratitude, forgiveness, having one or two practices which one does regularly is really, really crucial just to be able to tune into care. Maybe it's something else which brings about a sense of kindness or love. That, I think that's really imperative if we want to go into this territory because, again, even um, you know, in that discussion yesterday where people from multiple countries People use the language of love, even talking about national issues. You know, it was like, how do you operationalize love in a community? How do you do that in a nation, right? It's kind of, does, it, does that sound naive, right? How do you do, isn't, but that's how they were talking. People who were very involved. One of the people involved uh, who was there, um, has been nominated to take on a uh, special role with the UN for um, for issues of uh, social justice for marginalized communities. Right. So this is um, and and they were talking about using the language of love in situations of polarization. So I think the heart practice is really crucial. And then we also. Uh, looked last time at a very, very central practice, which is the practice of cultivating empathy and of really listening carefully. And this is a practice we can do every day, you know, to really cultivate listening, empathy. And I gave the uh, practice, I talked about empathy some, and said that empathy, we usually think of empathy as meaning um, tuning into what the emotions are of another person. But the Scientific research shows that there are three dimensions of empathy. One is tuning into the emotions. Another is tuning into what's meaningful for another person, what matters. 
And then a third is actually a little more unconscious. It's at the bodily level. We tune in to the other person. We can have a sense a sense of the other person's um, uh, what's going on at the level of the body. This is what, what brings in the so-called mirror neurons, where when I see someone walking across the hall in my brain, there are little images of, of that person walking. I'm tuning into that. So empathy is innate, but as I mentioned last time, because it's an innate capacity, it can be misused. Politicians can be really empathic and use that knowledge to manipulate people. Oh, I know what your emotions are. You're a little scared. I'll manipulate that, right? And so that's why I like to talk about empathy as a practice that we consciously do with the aim of understanding and connection. So that distinguishes it from sort of the misuse of empathy, which can occur, you know. Uh, as I mentioned last time, psychopaths can be very empathic, right? That's uh, it's kind of shocking to hear that, but that I think that that's actually true. The empathy is still working because it's innate, but they will misuse it for other reasons. And so I gave the practice last time, uh, which was developed by myself and uh, my colleague Oren J. Sofer, coming from the discipline of nonviolent communication, and we have a very simple empathy practice of tuning in to what someone is feeling, what the emotions are, and then what the uh, what matters for the person. You know, when I gave uh, last time, I, I showed these um, tables of emotions and needs. And let's go to that now, Carlita, and we'll review that. And these are this is from a nonviolent communication. Basically, this helps us be a little more emotionally uh, literate. A lot of details under individual uh, emotions. So we can see that there are all sorts of different emotions that come under peaceful or mad, angry, uh, sad. There can be you know, grieving, lonely, heavy, troubled, you know, a lot of uh, and very, very helpful. So I think this can be helpful, and uh, Carlita will put this again in the chat, and you can, um, if you wish, um, click on the attachment and then uh, sort of uh, download it. And if anyone has a problem with that, you can put your name in the chat and ask Carlita to send it to you by email, and, and she's willing to do that. Thank you, Carlita. Yay. And then we... Um, also can talk about needs, and uh, we can put on that now, Carlita. The, this is the also from Nonviolent Communication. It identifies what are called needs, which are, uh, this is also equivalent to what matters. And this is taken to be universal, uh, so that there are, you know, needs for, you know, for rest, there are physical needs for rest, for nourishment, and so forth. There are needs for shelter. Um, can we put that on now, Carlita? Thanks. And so this is what I'm calling what matters. And the interesting thing here is these are taken to be universal, that there's always a, uh, you know, with, with someone acting, with someone 
uh, speaking, there's always going to be some need connected with it. It could be a need for security or for uh, freedom or for uh, integrity. And, you can, and, and this is actually helpful to see because this may be less familiar to us. Now, the key point here is that in this model, needs are distinguished from strategies. Someone can have a really unskillful strategy. I can, you know, I can, uh, you know, I can uh, hurt someone because I want security, you know, or I want to punish someone. And, uh, you know, the, the hurting someone is very unskillful. Security is a universal need. And so one of the things that really we can do in our empathy practice is to see people we disagree with. We can see maybe there's a questionable strategy, but there is always going to be a, um, a need or a value which is universal. You know, and I think I mentioned, yeah, I mentioned last time doing a retreat at Los Alamos National Laboratory and being in discussions with nuclear technicians and scientists. And, you know, I was there as a retreat with people and people were, uh, my colleagues at the retreat, we had about 30 people at the retreat and during lunch we would meet with uh, nuclear scientists and technicians. And some of my colleagues just immediately got into, you know, conflicts with them. I think I and some others tried to be empathic and I could hear almost immediately when people tried to justify nuclear weapons, they were talking about security. And so empathic listening would pick up on that. Very crucial for differences, right? And so um, we'll do that little exercise that we did last time where I will speak and you will listen for the, um, uh, the emotions and um, the emotions and the needs that are that are there, yeah. Okay, so um, I was listening yesterday to the congressional hearing, and it was kind of inspiring to hear this um, young assistant, um, but Catch Cassidy Hutchinson is that it? Something like I don't know if I'm getting that wrong, but. Um, it was inspiring to hear, and I, I couldn't imagine the level of courage that it had to, to speak like that and to say things that were from confidential settings, you know, and I don't know what the background were and the pressure. I was, you know, concerned, you know, she could, you know, with the level of, uh, you know, division and so forth, uh, there are a lot of people. Anyway, cut. So you could... Uh, you were doing, oh, I forgot to tell you to do empathy practice, but let's uh, raise your hand. What emotions did you hear from me? Okay, can you just raise your hand? Okay, please, Ginny, yeah. Apologies, I see Rosie, I'm looking for Jenny. Ginny is uh, in my second row. Oh, Ginny with a G, there you are, thank you. Yeah. Ginny and then Rosie. Yeah, what, what emotions did you hear? What are one or two emotions? Well, I noticed some admiration. Yeah. And you actually mentioned concern, but that yeah. was the other. Yeah, concern. Yeah, right. And Rosie. 
You're off to unmute, Rosie. Yes, those were the two that I picked up on also. Yeah. Anyone else notice an emotion that you want to name? Uh, Victoria, please. Victoria, I'm coming for you, dear. I'm coming for you. There you are. Okay, thanks. Um, well, I don't know if it qualifies as an emotion. Um, curiosity. Yeah, I think curiosity could be an, would fall there. Yeah. So, and then what were some of the needs that you heard? Again, this is our doing our empathy practice with me. I still seem to be unmuted, so I'll go ahead and okay. <laughs> continue. Um, I, I heard in mixed with the curiosity a kind a concern um, for the for the security of the um, the young aid assistant. Yeah, that, that, that sounds right. Yeah, security. I think that would be a value. One or two others. You can just raise your hand. I can see people. Uh, anyone else identify what mattered for me? Uh, Ginny, yeah. I hate to go again, but since nobody said anything, um, I think there was an interest in information. Yeah. Yeah, information and interest in you know integrity, maybe authenticity. So that would be that would that's an example of doing empathy practice. And one of the ways there are kind of two things I'd point to. One of them is the encouragement to keep practicing in very ordinary situations. Tune into uh, what the emotions are and what matters. You know, uh, watch a movie and do empathy practice <laughs> for a while, right? You can do that. But just to do this in a very ordinary way, think of it as a spiritual practice. You're developing the capacity to tune into other people's uh, experience. And so it's it's all about careful listening. Yeah. No, I'm not going to take questions right now, Victoria. So we'll, well, we can come back to them. Yeah. Okay. So, and then what we can also do is we can apply this model to differences and conflicts. And so let me see if I can get this on the screen. Okay. Can you see this? Uh, Carlita, can you see a grid? So this is, um, this is a way to bring this into differences or conflicts. And you can do this. You could do this right now. Think of a, think of a difference or conflict maybe with one other person. And then have this grid of four quadrants and identify what are my emotions what are my needs using the same model? What are the other person's emotions? What are the other person's needs? Right? So you can think about that. And this is amazing if you do this. Because you can what you know what we often find is that what the problem really is is the strategies that are being used. And in many differences or conflicts of an interpersonal nature, we'll find that my needs and the other person's needs are exactly the same. So this is a very revealing little exercise that you can do to to work with this, you know, and even 
Now let me let me ask you, um, yeah, let me ask you. Take a minute and see if you can do this really quickly with a um, a difference or conflict that you're part of. Yeah, so let me let me go on now. How many how many people did that at least to some extent? Got started. Yeah. And I, I want to really encourage that as again a regular practice. You can do that from a distance with maybe an unresolved conflict. Uh, suggestion would be start with the easier ones. Don't go I like to you know identify the level uh, in terms of uh, you know 1 through 10. Don't start with the nines or tens with this sort of thing. Start with the fours or fives. Start with a kind of low-level conflict and see if you can work that out. And see if you can get um, insight from, from using that model. So I think I'm going to mention briefly some of the other practices. Um, you know, one, uh, one of them is practicing with views. We want to really see, do I have attachment to my views? We're not asked to give up our views or perspectives. But where am I kind of tied around them? Where do I um, where do I think I have the total truth? It's interesting. From in Buddhist tradition, there is both a teaching of what is wise view or skillful view, but also about non-attachment to views. And ultimately, the the deeper teaching is that actually the deeper truth can't even be expressed in language. The deeper truth is beyond language. And, you know, if we think of the deeper truth of love or of the depths of awareness, it goes beyond language and concepts. But even the Buddhists, there's that holding of both. There are skillful views that are helpful to have, and there's non-attachment to views, not holding on too tightly. And then there's the working with difficult emotions, which come up in differences and conflicts. So, and again, we could have a whole day or week on this. How do we work with uh, anger, fear, sadness? We can work with mindfulness, we can bring in the heart practices, you know, and then maybe lastly I'll just name, uh, you know, the skillful speech, which we again looked at in uh, in brief last time, speech that works with uh, being truthful, being helpful, coming from a good heart, even if we're saying something difficult, and having good timing and bringing all four of those together. Again, we could, uh, you know, take uh, a week just on wise speech. So let me let me finish with that, and let me see if I have uh, maybe a, a closing thought. Um, Yeah, I think I'll give another one from uh, Dr. King to close. This is from 1961. And I think this is, uh, he, he reflects on the nature of the United States, uh, but I think it's relevant for, for all countries. He says, in the real sense, America, and again, we could say the world, in the real sense, America 
is essentially a dream, a dream as yet unfilled, unfulfilled. It is a dream of a land where people of all races, all nationalities, all creeds can live together as brothers or sisters. I think our, the practices that we've been working with go in that direction. I think that's when we bring our practice to polarization, difference and conflict, we're going in that direction. A lot more to be said, but I'll, I'll stop there and invite everyone just to take a, a few moments of quiet, see what's, what's important for you, see what's there, see if there are any reflection, sharing, or questions coming up. Let's take about a minute just to have silent reflection. Thank you. And let, let me invite any uh, sharing or uh, reflection, questions. We can use, again, uh, the raised hand function, or I can also, I can see people. If you raise your hand, I can recognize you. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's see. Somehow I got muted, huh? Okay. I guess I got unmuted. <laughs> okay. Uh, Seema, I had my hand raised. Seema, please. Yeah. Um, when I did the my needs, their needs quadrant thing, and an issue at work that has been really bothering me for yeah. almost two years yeah. to the point of fury became very simple. <laughs> it wow. was so simple it's embarrassing. Um, my feelings and the other person's feelings are very different. Our needs are almost identical. Wow. And when I saw that, it's like, wow. I mean, I've really been fuming over this guy's work for two years. Um, and sometimes I think that my holding on to my views, which is very strong, is as simple as taking a look at it. Because I don't always look, even though I think I'm very open-minded and I'm looking all over the place, I'm, always, I'm not all the time. I mean, yeah. This is why I do this practice to be more aware. Oh, that's right. Thank you. Thank you, Seema. Amazing example. You know, we could really ask. Again, uh, that's I've experienced that many, many times. When I do, we call that an empathy map. When I do those four quadrants, it can be very, very revealing pretty quickly, right? Just like you experienced, and and then um, and then you have, you know, we have our practice, so we can you know, we can have that insight, but then work with the difficult emotions and have ways of working with what comes up, right? So, yeah, yeah thank you for sharing that. Yeah. How many thank people you. found something similar in investigating it? There was something revealing. Yeah, if anyone wants to share that, uh, feel free. You can, again, you can do the raised hand function. It looks like uh, Vivian is next. During the week, I tried using empathy with someone 
with whom I usually disagree. Yeah. And we usually end up in an argument of some kind all the time. Yeah. Well, I started just focusing on empathy and reflected back to the person what I thought they were feeling. Mm -hmm. Talked about that. And it diffused the situation. But more surprising was the next two times that I had interchange with this person, he reflected empathy back to me. Whoa. (laughs) He has never done. And it's like, wow, I really modeled it and got it. So thank you. It was great. That's beautiful. Yeah, there's so much in what you're saying, but you know, that, uh, you know, all of our difficult interactions generally have contributions from both. And when one changes, often the other changes. It's quite interesting. Yeah, and beautiful, beautiful example. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Nancy, please. And then Sylvia. Yeah. You know, mine is, can you hear me? Yes. Mine is very similar to Semi's. When I looked at my son-in-law has different views about many things. He's more conservative than I am, but especially about guns. And that's very disturbing to me. So I've been conflict avoidant, not wanting to talk to him. But I saw that our needs are the same. Hmm. I want safety and protection for my daughter, his family, and for society. But those are his needs, too. He wants to feel like he can protect. So it might be a jumping off place someday to have a conversation about it. At least I can see the possibility. Right. I think when one can be empathic, there can be some dialogue possible without the empathy it's very hard to go further right yeah. so you you might be in a place really acknowledging that security you know maybe you say would you be open to looking at different ways to meet that security you know or or you know see what a good way to proceed is but i think just to really listen with some depth as you've done is is a starting point yeah yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks Thank for the example. Uh, Sylvia, please. Hi. Um, so when I was filling out all four boxes, I have a hard time filling out what they are feeling is. You know, I yeah. I kind of understand their needs, the opposite uh, person needs, um, what my feelings are and what my needs are. And I just kind of wrote it down what their feeling is, and I crossed it out again, I crossed it out again. So it's, it just, um, I don't know, I guess with practice, um, I will be someday getting their feelings, or maybe I'm just so emotional and into it that I just um, couldn't see, you know, why they feeling that way. Yeah, um, yeah, how many, how many had similar experience? Sometimes it's hard to know the feelings and needs of another. That's that's going to be true for all of us in some situations. And so um, two things. One is that it's okay to guess. <laughs> for the purposes of this kind of exercise, you can make a guess as to what the emotions might be or the needs. But then you can, you can practice. Uh, you know, it's a little bit harder with us doing this kind of at a distance from the person and the situation. But you could practice something like this uh, in situations where you're, where it's much clearer what the emotions are. So I think just practice there. 
And then there are situations where we, you know, we maybe have to guess some. And that's, that's, you know, that's the best we can do sometimes. Even, even when we're in person with someone, sometimes we have to make a guess as to what the other person is feeling or what the needs are. And that's, that's part of it. But we could also check, you know, we could say, you know, I'm sensing you might be, uh, I'm sensing some anger there. Do, are you feeling that? And, you know, the person can answer. A lot's going to depend on the relationship and, you know, whether you can, you know, in some relationships that would be easy to do and others it would be harder, right? So, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Sylvia. Thank you. Okay. Other sharing or questions? Yeah, Barbara, please. Um, when you were talking about cultivating empathy and listening, yeah. one of the things you said was what's going on in their body. Yeah. And I wasn't clear if you meant um, try to read their body language. Is that what you were talking about? You know, like if they were... I'm doing this up here, but if they were sitting in a real closed position or an open, is that what you meant? I didn't know what you meant by yeah, what th you thanks, meant. thanks, Barbara. Yeah, yeah. I referred to the scientific research on empathy as pointing to three dimensions of empathy, and the third I mentioned was the body. But in the empathy practice, we're just looking at two, so we're not we're not trying to tune into the body. I mean, oh, okay. you, you, you might do that, you know, you might explore that, but the empathy practice in itself was just looking at, in, in nonviolent communication language, feelings and needs, or emotions and, and what matters. matters. Yeah, okay. so I wasn't asking you to try to tune into the body, but, you know, um, some of us, you know, especially those who do a lot of body practices, might be interesting, yeah, but, but just the two is plenty. <laughs> I get it. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Barbara. Uh -huh. <gasps> okay. Um, Carlita. Uh, we did receive a question in the chat that oh. came my way, Donald. Okay. It says, how would you deal with people who are so confused that they aren't aware of their own feelings and needs? Let's see. Well, uh, it's a good question. Um, doing empathy practice doesn't depend on the other person knowing what the emotions are or what the needs are. So the empathy practices are tuning in to another person. Even if, you know, I can see that other person may be um, confused or not educated about emotions. You know, like for me, and this is true of uh, you know many men when I was growing up, and I think even even now, uh, I wasn't really tuned to say I'm feeling this or I'm feeling that. I, you know, I someone asked me how are you feeling, I would give a thought, right? So it took me later to really become more what we call emotionally literate and. How many people is that true for? You know, maybe you had to, to learn that. It's true of a, a number of us, and, you know, both men and women. But, um, and so I can, uh, I can do empathy practice independent of what the other person's awareness is. 
you know, I, you know, and, and sense what's there. And maybe, you know, maybe uh, the other person may not be very tuned in and may, may be actually expressing irritation, but you ask the person, are you angry or are you irritated? The person might say no, right? But what we can tune into that, that's the empathy, right? So it's, it's actually not so dependent on uh, the capacities of the other person. We can, we can still tune in in this way. You know, it, it may be, uh, you know, knowing what the need or what matters is may be a little harder if the person, you know, the person doesn't know. But I think it can, the empathy practice can still work. Having a discussion may be another matter. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for that question. Yeah, there are a lot of nuances and complexities here, you know, uh, that we could could look at. I mean, I think, you know, are there, and typically they come up at the extremes, you know, uh, you know, can I have, uh, you know, can I look for empathic relationship for someone who is just a stone wall, you know, for example, you know, and, you know, uh, communication and sharing of the kind that, that many of you just shared is not always possible, you know, sometimes, sometimes, uh, Mutual empathy is possible. Sometimes it's not. Maybe time for one more. If there is anyone else wanted to share or speak, anyone else? Okay. Um, so let me invite us all now to. Take a, take a few moments and see what's there for you after our, our session. What are your next steps with what we've been exploring? How to be skillful and bring, bring the depths of the Dharma, the depths of our practice into situations involving differences or polarization or conflicts, whether it's interpersonal or in an organization or in a larger world. You know, what, what are your next steps? How do you want to keep learning and exploring? See what's there for you. Take a minute or so. Now we'll, we'll close in a traditional way um, with the dedication of merit. Very, very traditional practice. And so may our, our intentions coming out of our session, may our next steps coming out of our session be of benefit to ourselves, be of benefit to others. May our session itself and its benefits be offered, particularly in terms of the benefits. May those benefits be offered to ourselves, to those in our circles, and then beyond those circles to all beings. 
knowing that we are part of all beings. May our lives, may our practice benefit all, which includes us. So thank you so much for your kind attention, for your practice, for your exploration. Enough of us do this and the world changes. Yay. Okay, so I'll say, I'll say goodbye in my usual way. Enough of us do this, the world changes. It really, uh, you know, we, wanna, we want a cultures of skillful conflict transformation. We want cultures of empathy, cultures of belonging. It's possible. Bye, everyone. You. Bye, you can unmute and, and speak you. if you want. Thank yeah. you so much. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you very much. That was wonderful. Thank you, Carlita. Thank you, Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Donald. Thank you, Sangha. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Bye, Charlie. Thank you, Donald. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Carlita. Thank you, Donald. Until okay. next time. See you Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a great week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.